Now, today we're going to return to our study of the ancient book of Daniel for the final time until September. Remember, Daniel spends July and August on the Outer Banks. He's not available for our study. Three weeks ago, as we began the second half of the book, where things shift suddenly from wonderful historical narrative to prophecy of the future, as we began that shift, I made several observations. I suggested that when our faith is being severely challenged, we all instinctively ask God what's happening in the immediate moment. Because we feel if we can just know what's happening in the immediate moment, we'll be able to trust God for the final outcome. But as we saw, when Daniel was knee-deep in uncertainty and opposition, God didn't step in and explain what was happening in the immediate moment. Instead, God gave him a vision of a distant, distant future. So it appears that God sees certainty about future outcomes as the real key to trusting him in the uncertainties of the moment at hand. And so three weeks ago, I closed by suggesting that knowledge of God's ordained future gives us discernment in the present, and it sustains our present faith and courage. When we see the bigger picture, we're better positioned to understand what's going on, why God has permitted it, what purposes it will serve, and how it's going to end. And that's why Scripture is chocked full of prophecy, and it's why we need to study biblical prophecy. Prophecy isn't given to satisfy our curiosity. It's given to strengthen our faith. Now, as I promised three weeks ago, I want to begin drilling down into the details of Daniel's first dream vision and the faith lessons that are embedded in those details. To set the stage for that, I'm going to read the verse from chapter 27 that describes the ultimate outcome of the events we're going to consider today. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. And his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. I've titled today's study, Trusting God in an Ugly, Ugly, Ugly Time. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, today as we talk about your revelations of the future, perhaps more than ever before, we need the assistance of your Holy Spirit. I need the assistance of your Spirit to interpret prophecy accurately. We need the assistance of your Holy Spirit to understand it, and apply it, and see its implications for our lives. So, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us as we navigate this ancient, ancient message about a future that hasn't yet arrived. Help each one to know what that future means for their current situation. And as always, we'll give you the praise because you alone are worthy And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
And amen. And as we listen for God's voice through His Word today, may the Lord be with you. You have all heard the old saying, a picture is worth what? A thousand words. But what we don't often hear is that those thousand words may be worthless. And I suggest that because interpreting whatever picture we see and then translating that picture into words is a highly subjective exercise. Because I hope you know we all tend to see what we want to see or what we've been conditioned to see rather than what the picture actually conveys. And that's especially true in matters of the Spirit. In matters of the Spirit, two people can see the same picture. But where unbelief sees proof of God's non-existence or His weakness, faith sees proof of His existence and His power. Now, Daniel provides us an example of that in the prophetic pictures that God gave to him in his dreams and visions. Scripture tells us that the events they portray will unfold in the future, and when they unfold, most of the people of the world will see them as final proof of God's non-existence or of God's weakness. But mature, discerning believers will interpret them differently. They'll see them as proof of God's unrivaled sovereignty. Because when it comes to interpreting prophecy, God doesn't leave us to ourselves. He doesn't leave us to our own subjective interpretations. God provides His people with words that help them interpret His pictures correctly. That's what He did for Daniel. And He's done more for us than He did for Daniel. Because God later would revisit the prophecies He gave to Daniel and provide even more words of explanation through the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John in the books of Second Thessalonians and Revelation. God's Word always explains God's pictures. Now, you'll recall in Daniel's first vision, he saw four unusual beasts, and they symbolized four earthly kingdoms. Three of them have already come and gone the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, and the Greek Empire. But that fourth kingdom hasn't yet been established. Now, I say that confidently because Daniel was told that that fourth kingdom will be different from any other kingdom that has ever existed, and history hasn't witnessed a kingdom that fits that description. And that likely explains why God symbolized that kingdom with a beast that was unlike anything Daniel or mankind had ever seen. In addition, God's prophecies are fulfilled exactly. Every detail, exactly. And no kingdom in history aligns exactly with Daniel's description of the fourth kingdom. Now, some have come close, but close is not exact. For something to be a fulfillment of a biblical prophecy, it has to be fulfillment in every detail. Now, the fact that Daniel's vision was given when he was grappling with uncertainty about the future and opposition illustrates that contrary to what we would like to believe, a revelation from God doesn't always produce immediate joy. 
If you're asking God for a word, if you're saying, Lord, I just need a word of explanation from you, you need to know that that word may not bring you immediate joy. It may not bring you immediate peace. It may not bring you immediate satisfaction. When Daniel received a word from the Lord, in his own words, he said, I was highly distressed. He was distressed by what God revealed. So he did a very smart thing. He asked God for more details. You can always ask God for more details. And God responded. But the details he gave Daniel were a view from 30,000 feet. It was just a brief summary of what was ahead. So Daniel asked for more details, and God obliged him. Specifically, Daniel wanted to know more about the thing that really troubled him the most, that fourth beast, that fourth empire. Well, God's recorded response, God's words, begin in verse 23. And as he began to describe what was ahead, God confirmed that Daniel's concerns were well-founded. Because unlike the first three empires, the fourth empire will achieve global domination. Many empires have dreamed of that. Many empires have attempted that. Some empires have claimed that, but they did so out of ignorance. But to this point in history, no empire of man has achieved truly global domination. One day that will change. Daniel learned that the leader of this different kingdom will himself be different, unlike any ruler in history. He is pictured in the symbolism of the vision as a small horn that emerges from among ten other horns on this unusual beast. Now, it's not as hard to understand as you might assume. Horns in Scripture symbolize human rulers and their power. So what Daniel saw was the emergence of a new ruler and a new power. And as that little horn emerges, three of the first ten horns fall away, which would seem to indicate he's going to subdue three earthly kingdoms on his rise to power. He's pictured as having eyes like a man and a mouth that makes great boasts. Those who covet power always make great boasts. The next two years, you're going to hear a lot of great boasts. But unlike previous rulers or politicians, this ruler will be different. He will be the long-ago pictured, long-ago prophesied counterfeit Messiah, Satan's counterfeit Messiah, known as the Antichrist, the counterfeit Christ. A ruler whose rise to dominance in the world will be demonically scripted, demonically promoted, and demonically empowered. Paul and John inform us he will preside over a counterfeit global version of God's kingdom, a unified world government undergirded by a unified one world religion. And that's why the increasingly popular suggestion that all faiths should unite, well, that doesn't signal spiritual progress. It signals approaching deception. 
It tells us Satan is setting the stage for that coming kingdom. The discerning know that any faith teaching, any religious teaching that denies Jesus as God in the flesh, resurrected the Messiah of the world, discerning believers know that any doctrine that teaches anything contrary is what God calls in His Word a doctrine of demons, a counterfeit that has its origin in hell. The undiscerning accuse the discerning of bigotry and hatred and narrow-mindedness and cultural arrogance. They don't realize they're drinking the demonic Kool-Aid. And they do all of this in the name of God. That's why you will hear those who profess to be Christian clergy talking about the need for Christianity to unite with Islam, idol worship that denies the divinity of Christ, or Christianity merging with Hinduism, or all of the religions coming together to serve the one true God. It sounds so noble. It's a setup. And people who know their Bible know it's a setup. You see, Daniel's vision reminds us unity isn't always a good thing. Sometimes unity can be a demonic thing. To an undiscerning world, weary of war, weary of terrorism, weary of genocide, weary of polarization, weary of hate, weary of strife, weary of strangling poverty, weary of injustice, a unified global government headed by a gifted, charismatic leader who promises peace will appear good. And those who embrace it will believe that they're freeing themselves and future generations of humanity from the long-playing ugliness of war and human division. But only God can set the human heart free. The unity of that fourth kingdom will be a demonic unity, a godly unity, unified rejection of God, unified rebellion against God, unified human arrogance. So rather than finding freedom, those who refuse the rule of God will discover they have submitted to the rule of Satan. He won't advertise it as such. He's too smart for that. But they'll find out when it's too late. They'll discover they've been reduced to little more than pawns in his tireless quest for power and desire to supplant the creator of the universe. Now, that discovery won't be immediate. For a while, things will appear to be very, very good. Because having waited thousands of years, Satan can wait a few more. Now, Daniel learned that the leader of this future kingdom, once he's established, will do three things. Verse 25 says, he will speak out against God. He'll deny God's existence. He'll deny God's goodness. And I would like to suggest that just as John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus, modern-day atheists are the forerunners of the Antichrist. They think they're writing a new script with fresh ideas that will ensure a better future. They don't realize they're reading from one of the oldest scripts in the universe and one that's guaranteed to lead humanity to a bitter, bitter end. There's nothing new under the sun. 
Second, Daniel learned something that his three friends expressed just before they went into the fiery furnace. You remember they said, we know our God can deliver us, but if not, we'll still praise him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood God doesn't always miraculously deliver. Christians die. Christians are martyred. Well, the ruler of this fourth kingdom will prove that because Daniel learned he's going to wage war against the saints. He will overpower them, and he will wear them down. Those are God's words. He will seek to destroy God's people in a worldwide genocide greater in scope than Hitler's Germany, Stalin's Russia, Pol Pot's Cambodia, or Mao's China. The third thing he'll do, Daniel heard, he will seek to alter the times and the laws. That's a rather odd expression. Here's what it means. He'll redefine history and he'll redefine morality. He'll redefine what God says about the times of humanity, and he'll redefine the laws of God. He'll portray history as the narrative of humanity's struggle to free itself from the stifling notion of God. And he'll portray morality as something to be defined by humanity rather than being defined by God. And he'll end up, as Scripture prophesies, calling good evil and calling evil good. Now, if that wasn't enough to distress Daniel, <laughs> what came next finished the deal. Verse 25, Daniel was told, God's people will be given by God into the hands of this murderous ruler for a prescribed period of time that is described as a time times, and half a time. That's biblical language for three and one-half years. That's why when the revelation ended, Daniel responded in verse 28 this way, My thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale. Daniel learned a truly ugly time awaits God's people, and that God will permit it. Daniel would ask for details, but at this point I had a hunch he wasn't so wild about the details he was being given. Now, God's answer raised serious questions. Have you noticed God's answers often raise serious questions? God's explanations often call for explanation. How could God allow his people to suffer at the hands of overt evil? And how could he give them over to a murderous adversary and expect that somehow they would hold on, trust him, and endure? How could they possibly do that? Well, I'd like to suggest the answer is embedded in history, testimony, and prophecy. History and testimony reminds us God's people are called to serve Him, and sometimes that service involves suffering. See, if serving God always involved miracles, a lot more folks would sign up to serve God. But history tells us, testimony tells us, sometimes serving God involves suffering. The greatest chapter describing faith in all of Scripture is Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament. 
And it begins by talking about people who did miraculous things, like closing the mouth of lions, that would be Daniel, by virtue of faith. And then halfway through the chapter, the narrative shifts dramatically. God begins to talk about those who suffered, were persecuted, made destitute, homeless, and murdered, executed, and they, in God's words, endured that by virtue of their faith. Sometimes faith is exhibited in what we overcome. Sometimes faith is exhibited in what we are able to endure. Serving God involves suffering. The prophecy reminds us that the coming war against the saints will be terminated at a set time. Just as a marathon runner can hold on till the finish line if they know once they pass that that certain mile marker, they're done. The people living in this period of time, known as the tribulation, the great tribulation, will know if they can hold on for those three and a half years, then God's got to step in and bring everything to an immediate end. They'll know the suffering has an expiration date. That's why I don't join those who feel the time, times, and half a time is symbolic of some indeterminate length of time. That wouldn't help people's God at all. I think God's people at all. I think God meant three and a half years. You can count on it. You can hold on. You can endure. And at the end of those three and a half years, after that kingdom of Satan has unwittingly served God's purposes, and we'll talk about those, That fourth kingdom will be destroyed instantly. God said it will be annihilated, never to emerge again. Now that knowledge, when you combine it with the same amazing grace God always gives persecuted saints, the same amazing grace He's giving our brothers and sisters in Nigeria and Indonesia and other places even as we speak, that knowledge combined with that amazing grace will enable God's people to endure. And then, the God who said, I will give them into the ruler's hands for a time, says, when it's over, I will give them the entire earth as their eternal inheritance. The earth is the Lord's. It's horribly broken. But He is going to restore it to its original planned perfection. And that's where we will spend our eternity in a creation that has no police stations, no sirens, no hospitals, no cemeteries, that doesn't need any politicians, that has no special interest groups, where there will be no injustice, where there will be no hatred, where there will be no disease, where there will be no aging, where there will be no death, and we will rule over it with Christ. You're not going to spend your eternity on a cloud-squeezing Charmin toilet tissue. You're going to spend your eternity on this earth when it's restored to its original majesty ruling and reigning with purpose and dignity with Christ. And Daniel was reminded the persecution that is coming will be temporary, three and a half years. But it will give way to a reward that is eternal. 
The coming forth kingdom of Daniel's vision will present God's people with challenges of a magnitude unlike anything in history, but it will not present God's people with new questions because God's people have always had to deal with evil that appears to put them and God's promises in severe jeopardy. I want you to consider David. There was a time in his life when God's promise that he would be the next king of Israel appeared to be impossible. It appeared to be in severe jeopardy. You remember the current ruler, Saul, in his paranoia, hunted David like an animal. David had to run for his life. He and his faithful band had to live in caves. They had to move every day. They had to sometimes move day by day. Some days they just barely escaped detection and execution. And Daniel could have easily assumed that promise was bogus. I'll never be the king of Israel. I'll be lucky to get out of this alive. But Daniel knew the prophet Samuel had anointed him to be Israel's next king, and God's prophets do not lie. False prophets always lie. God's prophets never lie. So David held on to his faith, during a time of trouble, and he inherited his throne. In similar fashion, a time is coming when God's promises to his people will appear to be in severe jeopardy. But Daniel's vision and the words God gave him of interpretation remind us, future persecution will not jeopardize the future God has promised. The fate of the world won't be decided by Satan's arrogance or human arrogance. It's already been decided by God's love. And whoever in the body of Christ goes through that day will be able to get through that day and trust God in that truly ugly time because they will know it's short. God has already spelled its demise. God has already told them when it will be removed and they know what will follow it. In many places today, the preaching of God's Word is basically reduced to something that's far less than the gospel. It's reduced to what's called moralistic therapeutic deism. There is a God, He likes you, and He wants you to treat people nicely. And there's nothing mentioned about prophecy, where the world is heading, how things are got to end up, and what the conclusions are got to be. And that's a tragic omission Because if you don't know where God is taking this world, you won't have discernment in the here and now. And if we should be among those who experience that day, if you don't know how it's all going to end, you probably won't be able to hold on. God doesn't put any empty filler in Scripture. He wasn't an author being paid by the Word. He put in what we need to know, and we need to know what He put in. On a practical level, the knowledge of prophecy will help you to hold on when God's promise to you seems to be in severe jeopardy. When everything appears to be going south, the knowledge of prophecy will help you to hold on. But as you navigate this increasingly deceived culture, The knowledge of prophecy will help you be discerning. 
You won't join those who are compromising the gospel and say, oh, this is so much more enlightened. This is so much more caring. This is so much more humane when actually it's just demonic. You'll know the difference. You won't be spiritually stupid. You won't be taken in by every lie and deception. You'll be able to say, that's not of God. I'm not going there. The knowledge of Scripture has profound implications. The knowledge of prophecy, profound implications for navigating the future that is ahead of us and remaining a discerning assembly of God's people in the coming days of mass deception. The deception will occur. We don't have to be a part of it. Where others will see the end of God, we'll see this is exactly what God said, and we'll say, I trust Him more than ever. Let's pray together. Father, we don't want to be spiritual children. We don't want to spend our lives in diapers, unable to handle the deeper teachings of Your Word. We want to be confident, discerning disciples who not only believe that You're a good, good Father, but who believe You're a good, good Creator, and You won't let this junk spoil your creation forever. You will step in. You'll allow the deception to play out for those who want to be deceived, but then you will step in and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ and Jesus and the church will reign forever. Lord, help us to be people who are convinced of that, who read our newspapers in the light of that, who make our decisions with the awareness of that. This I pray for your glory and our benefit in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.